How does a start-from-scratch entrepreneur design and assemble a growth gazelle in the crowded and somewhat stodgy construction business? We're going to hear about systems thinking at speed in a slow industry. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. Last week in episode number 152, we talked about systems thinking with Laura and Derek Cabrera and learned how a well-designed system of simple rules is an effective management tool for generating growth and business success. Today, we're back in flesh and blood land, battling reality, and we're going to reinforce our understanding of systems thinking as we listen to an entrepreneur who has applied it in the design and assembly of a new company resulting in gazelle-like, out-of-the-blocks performance in an established category where it might not be expected to find dramatic growth. Design and assembly is the second pin in the map of our entrepreneurial GPS system that's designed to help you understand where you are, identify where you're going, and give you the navigational tools to get there, Austrian style. The first pin, of course, is entrepreneurial imagination, which we talked about with Mark Packard in episode 151. Design is the process of advancing from imagination to the point of readiness for implementation. And in fact, it continues beyond that point to a never-ending activity of responding to feedback, learning, changing the design, and going back to the market. Design is a series of steps we construct, sometimes in our minds, sometimes on a laptop or the back of a napkin, but always carefully and thoughtfully based on our observation of information and our orientation regarding how we process that information. Each step in the design process advances it, adds more information, adds more detail, adds more robustness and performance, until the construct is ready for the marketplace, ready to serve customers, and ready to generate feedback. Assembly goes along with design. It's the identification of the right resources to do the job in the right combination, appropriately deployed. Derek and Laura Cabrera call the assembly process building the capacity to get the mission done, the readiness and the energy to perform. You'll hear a lot about that today and the surprising way that capacity is developed. Our guest today is a brilliant and highly successful entrepreneur, Brett Lindell. Brett is the CEO of Pantheon Holdings, which includes Aegis Exteriors and Fortress Roofing. It's a fast-growing, widely respected, and deeply trusted company supplying critical goods and services in the house construction industry. He's been a U.S. Marine, a corporate executive, and an entrepreneur and he's brought learning and insights from each one of those roles. He's going to share his approach to business building and brand building with us today and give us a raft of insights and success factors about designing and implementing highly effective business systems. Brett, welcome to the Economics for Business podcast. Hey, Hunter. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you here. We, we talk about designing and assembling great businesses and You've done that. You've uh, you're designed and assembled an entrepreneurial business that is very successful, successful for you, great for the customers that you serve, great for the people you employ. You're creating opportunities for all of those audiences, and that's what we're going to learn about today and some of the principles and insights behind it, which I know you, you think about deeply. One of the principles is knowing what you know. <laughs> and they call it the yeah. burden and principle, if, uh, if that's of interest to you, Brett. That's the, the theoretical term. But know what you know, know what you're good at, and start from there. So um, let's do that with you. I believe you served in the Marines, and that was a little bit of a, a grounding point for you. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I, I graduated high school in 2002 and went straight in the Marines, which that was a unique time to go in. and. Uh, I actually grew up in a construction family. My my father was a 
had a construction business and I was doing everything I could to get away from construction. So, hey, why not join the Marines at probably one of the most uh, interesting times possible? And, um, you know, learned a lot in the Marines, obviously interacting with, with different types of people. Uh, I, I was an infantryman in war uh, at a very you know critical time of that war. So uh, learned, learned a lot of great stuff there, leadership, uh, how to adapt to things. And, you know, then I get out of the Marines and, you know, what do you do in 2006 or seven when you get out and you're 22 or 23 trying to figure stuff out. So went to college, uh, you know, kind of floated around there for a little bit and ended up working oil and gas for a little bit. Uh, and then found myself right back, right back in construction, which is everything I was trying to avoid. So, uh, uh, what was good about that, though, is um, it allowed me to be far away enough from something I had experienced growing up, uh, but it allowed me to get away from it, kind of see the world a little bit, see different things, whether it's corporate business experience or military experience, and then kind of come back to construction, applying a lot of those you know, lessons learned, whether it be in life experience or, or just general business principles. Yep. Well, let's just stick with the Marines a little bit. Uh- Brett, because I know you learned something about about training people, and you talked to me about simplifying complexity. And complexity is one of the things we talk about all the time. The future is uncertain. The world is, we call it VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. You must have had a lot of that in the Marines. Yeah. And uh, I I honestly think if you were to boil the Marine Corps down to its essence, what the Marine Corps is very good at is taking very complex things and simplifying them. And and that's simply out of survival and necessity. So if you're, you know, as we're going into war in kind of the 2002, 2003 time, you know, all of our, our manuals we used were based off of cold war tactics, but here we are entering a very different war and Hey, guess what? We're going to give you 17 and 18 year olds from all different backgrounds and all different education backgrounds across the United States. So, uh, how do we take that group of of different types of guys and backgrounds and teach them very complex weapon systems, strategy, and tactics? And uh, you know the Marines are great at that. They can take very complex weapon systems and break them down. And you know that was a big contributor of okay. As I started my business, what are some of my strengths? And one of those being training people. Um, and, and in my area, hey, are there an availability of young moldable, malleable people that can be trained. And, and yes, so yeah, Marine Corps was extremely formidable that, and, and also, you know, the leadership, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know if most people realize this, but most wars are fought, um, by like 18 to 21 year olds, you know, it's not some, uh, sage, sage wise people. So it's, uh, it, it forces you to obviously grow up and deal with a lot of complex situations very fast. And there's parts of the Marine Corps that are great at teaching you that. And, other parts just by experience that you you kind of learn on the fly, so to speak. Good. So you're you're tucking away that experience for future use. I know you did make a stop at a major manufacturing company along the way to your to your own business. So tell us about what you yeah. picked up there. Yeah. So um, after the Marines, I had worked a little bit in oil and gas, and and that was a big big part too of getting some. Real world consultant and corporate experience, and I was then hired on by a company called James Hardy. Uh, James Hardy makes siding, and uh, they are a world class manufacturer. You know, just in the United States alone, nine nine manufacturing plants, um, another six across uh, uh, across the world, and you know, it was very interesting because you have this extremely highly complex company that creates products for guys who are in the construction field and, and not high level guys, but guys putting nails into boards who you know, have varying different, you know, backgrounds, whether it be uh, where they're from nationalities or education backgrounds. And one of my jobs was to work with companies who used our product. So I got to see a broad variety of companies going from very good to very bad. Uh, and I would say that out of the, for every one very good company I found, there's probably a thousand very bad ones. Um, you know, and, and, and believe it or not, the companies that I was 
helping kind of consult with and work with, they were the exact same type of company, you know, my father would have had growing up. So it was, it was not only looking into these companies, it was kind of looking at my childhood and kind of seeing areas where my dad did well and did wrong and kind of seeing these, these challenges that every small business owner goes into and, you know, honestly making some of the same mistakes over and over and over. Um, so importantly, what it showed me was a market need. Um, and I kind of said, you know, I was moved to my area temporarily based off this. Oh, just dramatically in front of me was, Hey, there is a need for a company that can perform this at a high level. And that kind of put me in my scenario of, can you be the guy to do that? So tell us a little bit more about that market need. How would you describe that, right? What was the need? Yeah. So what I saw, what, so the, the, what my company is, my company, one of my companies installs, uh, siding products on the outside of homes. And one of the things I kind of noticed was, is there were just a lot of bad companies doing it. And it, it was bizarre in a way. And uh, I'm like, surely, you know, it's not the case that they're all bad. But what I kind of found out is that the the companies that were good doing what they were doing, those people aspire to be something bigger. So those people went on to be builders or, you know, land developers or something. So they kind of graduated out of being a subcontractor. And, and I was like, okay, so this is, and, and the people who couldn't make it to the next level kind of remained in that space. And, and this is a, a broad blanket thing. You know, there, there's definitely some good ones in there. Uh, other ones who didn't choose to grow are people who are just content with the size they were. Uh, the problem with that was, is, you know, they have the same five employees for 30 years and, you know, that's it. So I kind of said, okay, if I took the uh, sophistication and skill of a, larger, more complex builder or land developer, but apply it to this quote unquote lowly subcontractor trade, you know, maybe something could really happen here. Um, and okay. What I notice about why some of these companies don't grow is they kind of level off in terms of revenue. And, and what that does is it doesn't allow them to keep hiring new people or give new opportunities for the people, you know, under them, which, uh, you know, people is a very big part of our business. Um, so I said, okay, so that, that was kind of my first observation. And my next observation would be, um, are there people here? Like, are, are there people to hire? And, you know, I live in a, a tourist area. And if you are a, a young male graduating high school, you're going to go either set up beach chairs, go work at a bar or restaurant, or, you know, that's kind of it. Or move off, move to a different state where there is opportunity. So I kind of said, all right, there is a workforce here of guys graduating who are maybe looking for a, a different path than that. They don't want to go work on the beach. They don't want to work in a restaurant. And they don't want to move away. So, hey, I've got a surplus of young males looking to do something. You know, that's typically what the construction industry is, is populated with. So um, then I kind of looked at the market. Would the market bear this? You know, keep in mind, this is the, there's a lot of fear in construction at this time, um, you know, that. 07, 08, 09, uh, housing industry collapse had scared a lot of people. So even me, you know, being a little bit of an Austrian or mostly an Austrian, I'm, hey, do I get involved in the construction trade? Um, but what I saw was of my area, you know, some, some things that do not change. And one of those being our beaches are very white. The water is very clear. It's a great place to live. And even if the economy were to change, still people are going, there are going to be some successful people in the economy and they're going to build a beach house down here or they're going to live down here. We live in a desirable place regardless of economic conditions. So there will be some level of business. Um, so, you know, kind of, those are just some basic factors. There were some more deep dives into stuff, but very honestly, that was the biggest driving thing. Is this a great place to live? Yes. Is there a workforce who's looking for a career path that currently doesn't exist? Yes. Uh, the other part is, you know, we're, it's very geographically separated here. Um, you know, that's kind of where the Marines comes in. Um, other larger companies from out of state had attempted to work here, but they were so used to working on a footprint that was so tight um, that their current business models would not work here. So, you know, adapting some things I learned from the Marines in terms of, you know, how you locate guys and how you decentralize command, I kind of came up with a model that I thought would uh, work well here and have the resources to do it with. Good. We love to hear that kind of analytics, Brett. You know, we talk a lot, at least I do, in theoretical terms about identifying your market and 
and uh, identifying your resources and assets and competitive strengths. And you've just described it in, in real life terms in a, in a wonderful way. So, so thank you. I wanted to ask you about the, the psychology or the emotion of, of starting your own business as a, as a young man, as um, perhaps without a lot of experience, somebody might say. Um, yeah. So, how did that feel? As we talk about uncertainty, or, or maybe it's anxiety, how did it feel to take the leap? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, honestly, it was terrifying. Um, I had a very good corporate job where I got paid very, very well. I had a brand new baby. My wife was pregnant, and little did I know, the world's largest hurricane was about to hit Panama City Beach, Hurricane Michael, in 2018. So, uh, you know. I, I had met with a mentor of mine, and one of the comments that they had made to me was, um, you know, hey, if, if it's something you're serious about, burn the boats. And, you know, that kind of relates back to a famous story about Cortez that, you know, I won't bore you with here. Anybody can go look that up. But I was looking for some way to, well, could I keep working here and kind of do this? But he had just kind of made the comment, just burn the boats. And, uh, you know, I did that. I Now, it... it I make that sound very easy. It wasn't. I I actually, <laughs> once I had my business plan together, I made sure and told people who were very important to me what I was going to do so that if I were to want to turn around and give up, that they could just shame me incredulously. So shame is a fantastic motivator for me. And I've, I've just learned that early on. That's, that's even how I joined the Marines. I, you know, I, for some reason, wanted to be a Marine very early on in my life, though I had no family in the military. And I knew there was a risk that when it got closer to me leaving that I might back out of it. So I made sure from about seventh grade on, I told everybody I was going to be a Marine so that if I were to not do it, I would be so ashamed and embarrassed. I couldn't face anyone. So I've just found that personally as a motivator, um, that, that that's maybe not pretty, but it works. Um, shame and pain and fear are great ones for me. Um, so, you know, I made the jump and it was funny. I mean, the, the person I was, and this was just in 2017, I can't even remember that person anymore. Um, there, there's part of it where, you know, all of your problems change within a few months. Um, all the things you think are going to be hard are actually easy. And there's a whole big bucket of problems you never knew were going to exist. So uh, you trade some of, you find out some of your fears are unfounded, but then you find some new fears to, to, to throw on your back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and constant change is something we talk about all the time. It sounds like you you experienced that. But I want to pick up on one thing that you mentioned just so we understand it, and that is you said you had a business plan. What what did that look like? Yeah, so um, you know, I am a very I believe in a plan and I believe in like really differentiating the the steps of of the of 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 doing something, and that would be thinking, planning, executing. You don't want to be planning while you're executing and you don't want to be thinking while you're planning. And, uh, you know, that's where I see a lot of people fail. And so my plan was, I mean, uh, I literally went and pulled, I Googled what a pro forma was. I believe I pulled it off like a QuickBooks forum and it was a pro forma for some different business unrelated to mine. I did my very best to turn that into, you know, something that looked like me. And I said, I, you know, I, that plan I executed in my mind probably a thousand times before I actually did it. And I went through all the paces and then when it was time to, so it, it was, a, it was a spreadsheet. And you know, what I find now on the kind of jumping ahead is I look at a lot of different businesses to either start or acquire some of the very best businesses fit on a half a sheet of paper. And so, uh, you know, my business plan was very simple, but it was still detailed enough for it to be real. It wasn't so, uh, meta or esoteric that it didn't, didn't actually mean anything. It was a plan that, you know, and a big part of me too was I wanted to be able to write this plan, go execute on it, and then tell people, hey, see this thing that I planned and then see how I did it. Now, here's why you should give me a million dollars to do this next thing that I planned out and I'm going to go do. And so I was very, for some reason, prescient and conscious enough to be aware that it's very important that whatever I do with this plan I create and then move into execution mode, that that will be my calling card, or it can be a calling card. And so I've been very disciplined in terms of whenever I make plans, you know, forecasting them to people and then executing on that so that I can show whether it's investors or buyers or other people next to me, like, hey, you know, this is, I, I said I was going to do X and, you know, here's what I did. 
Yeah. And is the plan mostly numbers, Brett? Uh, well, so it's numbers and, but it's numbers, but it's, you start out by taking things that are qualitative, like a house and converting it to that. So you'll have a lot of baseline assumptions at the top. So, uh, for instance, I calculated, Hey, um, you know, on average, a house might give me $15,000 in revenue. And here's the breakdown of what the cost of goods versus gross profit is. And how many of those can be done per month and how many project managers does it take to do that? So it is all numbers, but if you were to dive down into it, those numbers represent, you know, people and houses and trucks and gas cards and stuff like that. So, you, I mean, you can, you can turn essentially anything into numbers um, and, and uh, numbers are good. I think a lot of people shy away from it uh, because it can be daunting, but if you can kind of learn to translate like action into numbers, it's a good way to kind of be your, your dashboard towards progress or failure or success. A quick note, Economics for Business is a uniquely Austrian platform to help entrepreneurs build value-generating businesses at every stage of the entrepreneurial journey. We've now launched online with an outstanding database of entrepreneurial knowledge, tools to solve specific business problems, and a community exchange to share information and experiences. Check it out at econforbusiness.com. That's E-C-O-N, the number four, business.com. Explore and let us know what works best for you in the feedback section. Now, back to our conversation. So I know that how you deal with customers is very, very important to you and your your business model a lot of that is qualitative qualitative right it's it's relationship building and making promises and keeping promises as much as the numbers maybe even more than the numbers tell us about the yeah. customer side and and how you got into that part of the business yeah so it's very interesting when i when i did research for the company um my initial thought and i think everybody's initial thought is how do i do the very best job and that is the truth, but how do you define that? And, you know, for instance, in construction, it might be, how do I build the best house? But what I found when I talk to people currently who are now my customers and they're my future customers, everything they stated to me was unrelated to the product, more around the ser- service of it. So a big thing was people saying, hey, if you say you, you are going to do this, doing it. We have so many people say they can do this, and then when it comes time, they can't execute. Or, ah, we've called called them so many times, and they never pick up their phone. Or, man, we've left you know five messages, and they never return our phone call. Or, you know, even within the entire process, saying, hey, you know, it's really not fun to work with this guy. And it was very interesting. I found that everything related to this was unrelated to the you know. So I do citing, but none of the biggest complaints or needs were related to siting was more related to the service around it. So um, I, I came up with a very, you know, I came up with kind of a, you know, this, this is pulling from the Marines. I took something complex and I just found we made kind of a mission statement for my guys to start. And, you know, our, we have four rules. Number one, tell the truth. Number two, pick up the phone. Number three, return all phone calls. Number four, customers in all directions. And uh, I, I found that of the big list of needs and gripes and complaints from people in the market that those four items captured about 80% of, of everything. So, uh, you know, and th- those are very simple rules that you don't have to have a lot of experience in construction. You can read that list and I can articulate it and give you real world, ex- real world examples. And w- within a week or two, as an employee of mine, you can be you know very productive and you can be delivering value to our customers to begin with. One phrase you used there, I haven't heard that before, and it, it sounds uh, quite empowering, is the idea of customers in all directions. Tell us more about that. How did you develop that idea? Yeah. So if you look at me, my customer is a builder. Um, but then there's areas where I'm the customer. So for subcontractors who may work for, for me, in theory, I am the customer, and they should want to court me to try to win as much business as possible. Uh, also, material suppliers. I am a very big customer. So in theory, they should court me and 
And if I wanted to, I could kind of you know, reign supreme and give fiats on high of what I want and stuff. But what, what I did instead, what I kind of saw was, you know, a lot of companies take advantage of that. And if they're the customer, you know, maybe it's because they're, you know, kind of passing the buck from how they get treated. They're going to kind of treat those badly. I, I instead did the opposite thing. So when we look at our suppliers, we, we go through a very big rigorous process of how do we be a great customer to them? How do we treat them like a customer? Or the subcontractors who work for us, we're doing everything in our power to, for them to be the customer to us, for to flip the roles. And this goes down the chain uh, of everything, even our employees. You know, when I think of my employees, I don't think of them working for me. I think of them as probably my most important customer. And uh, we kind of take this, you know, it's kind of a servant mentality, uh, but it's more of a customer mentality. And here's what we find. The uh, suppliers love to work with us so much that they're all beating down our door. They're giving us great prices. They're giving, giving us the best service. You know, we don't beat them up on price. We say, hey, give us the price on materials where you can execute your service proposition to the fullest extent. We want to see your very best work. And so it kind of changes the game a little bit. We find the suppliers who are really in it to be good because when price is taken off the table and they know they're going to make their money and now say, okay, all of the service proposition you offered to us, now we, we want to see you at your very best. That's when we really start to see the true performance. And that's when, um, you know, it sounds cliche and Pollyanna, but we come partners with people in our mar- market. You know, that, that vendor who's supplying us material a new customer comes in town and they're the first person that, you know, they introduce us to them first or uh, that subcontractor, you know, they come to us and say, Hey, we've got more people. We only want to work for you. Or, you know, we have a lot of generational guys working for us where their sons are growing up and now want to work for us too. So we just flipped a little bit and some way you never get to be the customer. You never get to be the guy getting dinners bought for you, but, um, it all doesn't matter when you reach that kind of level. It's really fun to try to service everyone around you the best, even even when you know the roles are a little bit flipped on their head. Yeah. We had an episode once uh, with a contract lawyer, and he talked about contracts as uh, expanding the value pie for both parties. So when you negotiate the lowest price, you're actually contracting the value because, as you said, your supplier might do the minimum to get get his uh, lowest price, but you're talking about expanding the value, right? I'll I'll pay you what you want, but I want the best from you, and we both win. We both get to do great work. So you're expanding the value pie. I think that's a great principle. Yeah, and when I look at my customers, my most sophisticated, largest, whether it be builders or developers, those are the ones where you know negotiations are tough in terms of they're accurate and. Um, very discerning, but it's more of a formality at that point. You're both saying, all right, here's my path next year. What does your path look like? How do we merge those together? You know, when I'm talking to a builder or something who might only do a, usually the ones who are the, the guys who quote unquote drive the hardest bargain might be the kind of smallest fish in the pond because they're doing what they think they should be doing. And that's being a, you know, a hard purchasing manager or a hard whatever. But really the guys who perform optimally and at their very best are some of the most pleasant conversations because it's, well, hey, we all know what we've got to do here. Let's both uh, let's both move in the direction that benefits us both. All right. So we're we're starting to delve into principles and insights here, Brett. And thank you for doing that. One of the things that you said to me once was, um, although I've got a let's call it a small business. I hate that term, but an entrepreneurial business. Let's call it. Um, I can think in terms of principles of, of working at the highest levels, looking like a big company, doing what a big company would, would do. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know where I got this from. It was either uh, Michael Gerber, E-Myth, or maybe Tim Ferriss or something. But uh, I, I, I had started my business as if it were a $100 million business. Um, and that's that's not to mean like I went out and bought fancy trucks and offices and stuff like that, but I thought of it like that. And you know, although I didn't wasn't able to hire people right at the beginning, I was in a way, you know, one of the first people I hired was a tax accountant and a bookkeeping accountant. 
And I thought of all the things that a $100 million business might have in place. And I was really working towards all that from the beginning. I had handbooks. You know, I had handbooks for doing stuff when I didn't even have employees. Um, you know, and as much as I look back and gripe about my time in corporate America um, or even the military, one of the best things that that ever taught me was the ability to create handbooks um, so that new people can come in. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, little things like that, uh, training people, you know, and so when they were stepping into it, I, w- I was creating a system and, and I, in fact, I just got done with a conversation not too long, just, just a few moments ago before this with an employee that, Hey, I, I don't want you to think about your job, what it looks like today. I want you to think about it, what it looks like for, you know, one year and three year and five years from now. And who do we need to hire before it gets to that point? So we're extremely proactive in developing out systems. Uh, extremely proactive in hiring um, and extremely proactive in hiring people at like really good compensation levels because we know at some point on our path to 100 million, we're going to need those people or systems and systems are free. So let's start implementing those now. And then, you know, maybe that also allows us to more aggressively hire people too on our go- on our goal to 100 million. And technology too, I think you mentioned that's that's an important part of thinking like a hundred million dollar company. Yeah, and uh, you know that was a big construction is not necessarily a fun industry, especially on my level. Um, it's a lot of dirty job sites. You know, you got people doing graffiti in the the porta potties, and you know if if you're a person graduating high school or college, you're probably looking to go into tech or you know, something that seems cool. And so I said, Hey, can I, can I make construction cool? What I also saw was construction is probably one of the least touched industries by technology. So, um, you know, um, at the very beginning, I remember, uh, I was purposely finding apps and technology that were not currently used in construction. I remember looking on like, you know, different forums of like Apple developers and Google developers and like what cool app or gadget are they using today? You know, one of those was Trello, a very simple kind of planning app. But, you know, what I kind of said was, hey, um, maybe we'll have too much technology, but at least what we're going to do is is take advantage of technology and construction when other people are not. And so our suite of apps have changed over time, but we've always kind of done that. We're always kind of looking at the the next thing uh, because, you know, that's uh, it's just you know, very honestly, yes, we get a lot of value of it using it. But when um, I get to demonstrate my company to people maybe buying it or people we want to do work for, and I can show that we control all of our jobs via certain apps, they start to realize that we are more sophisticated than they are. And they start to be like, oh, that's really cool. We want you part of our team. And, And honestly, I've had more larger customers come and ask us to talk to their teams about Hey, what apps you use or stuff like that? Because they're trying to do the same thing. Yeah, that's that's impressive in terms of taking a leadership position in technology, and it brings the customer along with you. I like that that story. You mentioned systems, Brett. We again, we talk very theoretically here about systems thinking and complex adaptive systems and so on. You're living it. We also talk about systems of systems. So. Your marketing has got to fit in with logistics, which has to fit in with invoicing, which has to fit in with service. So how do you think about systems? Oh, yeah. I mean, I probably, I'm not kidding if I don't spend a good portion of my time thinking about just this. And, you know, all my shower thoughts are probably devoted to systems or, aha, we can do this. And and I, I honestly, as a leader, I have to be very careful not to implement too many systems. And uh, and make sure that we're committing to systems for long enough before we switch away from them. So, uh, you know, uh, that's a great question. Um, our, you know, on our smallest system, the way I think about it. So, I honestly, I love stealing ideas. Um, good artists copy, great artists steal. So, I steal a lot of ideas, whether it be from the military or companies I was at prior, and I just convert it to here. And one of those is the. Uh, uh, I took kind of the Marine Corps mission system, which is called BAMSIS, which is a way where you, it's a very simple way to plan a mission. And I converted that into kind of our construction process and system. And now when we're thinking of greater complex systems, 
Uh, there was something I was exposed to. It was actually by a British company I worked for in oil and gas. And it was uh, inquiry to order, order to cash. And, uh, and, and what that was thinking about is everything from the second a customer asks you to bid a job to the point they say, okay, looks good, and they order from you. So that's one segment. And the second segment being um, from the time they order from you to the time you get paid and everything that happens within there. And that's actually when, when every new employee starts, they get about a half day with me. And there's maybe you know two or three concepts I go over with them. And that is one of them. And, and my point to demonstrate that is, is uh, hey, look, every problem we have in the order to cash system, so that would be the kind of production side, every problem we have here might take three hours to fix. However, if we look on this initial part, the inquiry to order, it's probably a five-minute fix up front there. So how do we communicate problems we have on this back end to the front end of the process? And same thing when I talk to employees who work on the front end of the process, so that would be more the administrative and estimating side. Hey, these things, these problems that are taking you three hours, instead of taking three hours to fix that problem, have we talked to the other side of things to see if they have a five minute fix? And so uh, we're, we're constantly, that, that's kind of one of our things we're constantly going through our proactive versus react, proactive versus react. And in that kind of little universe of inquiry to order, order to cash, that's kind of where we implant a lot of our systems. So we can kind of put those on a board and then I can kind of, you know, see where systems don't exist where they need to be. So we look at our, hey, what are have been our problems this quarter? Oh, well, every time we estimate something, we're a little bit, you know, short on material. And so we end up having to order more. Okay, well, let me track that back to where that problem originated. You know, it's a it's a classical like, uh, you know, root cause analysis type thing. Um and we go back and we find that part. And, and I would say that's kind of the framework of our systems. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's always ongoing. And every time you add an employee to take a role, everything dynamically changes a little bit. And it kind of changes the landscape just a little bit where either you have to nudge your system around or maybe you don't even need a system anymore, but a new one is needed to be created. So it, it's, it's an ever-evolving process. Yeah. Where do the systems live, Brett? Do you... Do you have process maps or systems maps or are they in the yeah, so, software or so on the board, as you said? Yeah, on the board. So we, we're we kind of in the middle of migrating apps right now. But I would say uh, we use a, a, a different suite of apps, whether it be between Microsoft uh, Teams and their universe or Trello. And so uh, on Trello, we keep what we call an SOP board. So SOPs are kind of the the names we use for systems generally, you know, so SOP standard operating procedure. Now that could be something as small as hey, how do you apply for vacation or how do you pay a bill or how do you get a reimbursement? So those are kind of simple um, administrative tasks for like employee direct. Uh, but then into greater things like uh, our system for estimating it, we kind of capture that in uh, kind of a process so that in theory, um, and we got a great example. Our guy who's kind of handling estimating, he's going on vacation um, after the holidays and he's going to be gone for a week. And uh, and that's a big, ins- and, okay. And so what he's going to do, he's documented everything down in here so someone can take over his job while he's gone. And now that's a very big, uh, so we are a very family first company. Um, again, when I was looking at construction, what I found is construction companies do not value work-life balance. And so we made sure we did. And now what I, what I said was, hey, look, we're not going to get work-life balance by just not working. How, here's how we get work-life balance. We're going to put everything in a system and we're going to make this a system that someone can take over for you for a week, two weeks, three weeks, so that you can go on vacation, turn off your phone and never have to worry about it. And so if you're on vacation and you're having to stress about work, you know that's on you. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to help you create those systems that you can step aside. And now what that actually secretly does is that helps promote people. Uh, we tell people all the time, if you want to get promoted, if you can find a way to eliminate your role or automate it, that's the quickest way. And you could do that tomorrow and come to us and we'll give you more responsibility and more money. We have tons of responsibility to give and with responsibility kind of have a culture of systems because it means so many things to us. It means going on vacation and not having the phone ring off the hook. 
It means getting promoted. It means, you know, go into your kid's ballet recital or something. So, uh, you know, when I say I think about this all the time, you know, I, this is a good portion of why I think about it because systems are the way for success in so many different areas. We, we talked about things always changing. Um, so how does the, the capturing of systems and putting the steps together and everything you've just talked about, how does that deal with change when, when there's chaos out there or um, something yeah. comes along you don't expect or it's just the dynamics of the market is changing? How do you incorporate change? Yeah, uh, oh, very good question. So uh, one of the downsides of systems is that for certain types of people, they want to just be able to execute that system and expect the uh, same results all the time. And when the market changes or there's some weird stuff, that doesn't work. And so in addition to systems, we're really big about mindset. Um, so, uh, one of the, so all of my guys, they get a gas card, an iPhone, uh, a credit card, and, uh, and, and kind of like a mission, right? And the goal would be is if you can't solve a problem with those three things, we, you know, we have to, we have to work on that because you can either Google it, you can shoot the money cannon at it, or you can like drive to go ask somebody who does, does have the answer. And, uh, and you know, that's kind of a, a fun way to think about it. And the, the way, honestly, we deal with dynamic change is really empowering our, our people. That sounds so cliche and I hate to even say that. Um, but we take a very decentralized approach where our project managers out in the field. So typically in a very traditional construction company, project manager or superintendent out in the field, they're kind of just executing a plan that's already created in the office. Uh, they might have some ability to purchase some stuff, but they'll have thresholds. Uh, they still have to go to the job site every day. If you look at our project managers, no one's overlooking them. No one's giving them a schedule. Uh, they have an unlimited amount on their credit card to spend. Uh, they've got full ability and authority to make decisions. Now, if they made a very stupid one, would they get in trouble? You know, potentially, we'd probably have a learning lesson from it. But if their rationale and logic was sound and they still made a mistake, we'd probably just chalk it up to, okay, it didn't work out. Um, but what we don't ever want to uh, take away from people is that kind of creativity and also the kind of empowerment. Again, these all are buzzwords that I hate. But what, what I find that's so surprising, and, and I came from a background like this too, not, not the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps was great. They'll let you, uh, you know, go get into lots of trouble um, by yourself. Uh, but you know, at a lot of these corporate companies, you're so you're so beaten down. And you have so many limitations on you that uh, there's all these levels of creativity and enthusiasm that people have that just get beat out of them. Uh, if you look at the uh, let's take the Marine Corps, they have 14 leadership traits. I won't tell you all of them, but the very last one is enthusiasm. And uh, <clears throat> of the 14 leadership traits, you can train 13 of those. The 14th, you can't train it. You kind of have it once. And if you extinguish that out, it's gone. And uh, yeah, I know this is kind of drifting from your initial question, but um, the way we deal with change is we, you know, we're kind of putting people out there who are enthusiastic. We're showing them that they're supported. They're getting trained to a certain amount of the job. They're being told that, hey, there's a lot of decisions you've got to make and some of them you're going to mess up, but we're here to support you as long as you're doing it from the right perspective. And you get people like that and you get, I mean... I'll give you the number to every single one of my guys today unprompted. And I guarantee every single one of them are extremely motivated because, you know, they stand behind us or we stand behind them a hundred percent. And, you know, we don't need to figure out how to deal with change when you have a team like that. Yeah. Well, you know, what you're saying is, is brilliant, Brad. We, we talk in these fancy words sometimes, as you mentioned, empowerment and, we call it the entrepreneurially empowered organization. One of one of our guests one day called it bossless. You don't worry about your boss. You worry about uh, yeah. getting your job done using your own your own creativity. But you've described it in a in a real life way that that works, right? And so you've had good outcomes. Of all of this, uh, the way you've approached your business, the all of the insights and principles you've given us, you've had excellent outcomes. Can you what can you share with us about outcomes? Yeah, so uh you know, our my main my my main business was uh 
you know, supposed to start out very small. And, you know, in 2018, I think we did about 50 houses. 2019, we did about 250. Uh, 2020, we did about 500. 2021, we're right around 800. And next year, we'll be doing about 100 houses a week. Um, and that's that's tremendous. Yeah. Um, it's in Silicon Valley, you'd be a gazelle. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you believe how many customers we've turned down. This is, uh, honestly, this is extremely conservative growth. Um, but, and by exactly why everything's happening. I just know that I came up initially with some good principles and we execute on them. And it seems to resonate quite a bit with our customers. Uh, you know, obviously when we made entry into the market, we we're very price, uh, price effective because we had to grow share, but now we're in a spot where, um, you know, we can command higher margins cause we've changed the game. Uh, and I hope I'm addressing the thing you're asking about. Uh, you asked me about outcomes. I'm thinking about 50 million things I'm proud of, you know, and some of them being, you know, very small too, just, uh, guys who've been promoted to different spots. Uh, so the outcomes that matter to me are actually much smaller than, you know, people might think, you know, just a guy getting promoted or a guy, you know, getting married or buying a house or something like that. Those are the outcomes that are fantastic. Uh, the reason we have so much tremendous growth is because, uh, you know, I understand that growth is what will fund those promotions and new roles and stuff. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, it, it's been a tremendous year. Uh, we were recently took on a partner where we sold half of that current company. And, uh, you know, that even is on a broader uh a broader kind of direction to make sure that we continue to provide opportunity to, to my people and um, around me so that they'll continue to grow. Well, it's a brilliant story and thank you for sharing it with us. I thought we'd end on a human note. Okay. You've, you've actually mentioned a lot of that, you know, taking care of your, your employees and, their daughter's ballet recitals and those kinds of things. But we say that the most human business wins. It's got that emotional uh, sensitivity. It, it, it thinks about humans and solving their problems and supporting them and so on like that. Just give us a little bit more of your philosophy there about human values and human experiences in business. Yeah. Um, no, I, I realized that first employee, I realized that, and, 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 and he's still with us today and he does a fantastic job. But in that first year, he made lots of mistakes. But I remember there were so many little aha moments in there for him and for me that I realized that, okay, all of the rest is just details. And and trust me, this this makes me sound like I'm some big soft you. And I care about people. Uh, I, I care about business. Um, it sounds so cliche to talk about people, but it, it, it truly is that. I've had so many people's lives change in just very simple ways. Um, like I said, uh, once I had that first aha with an employee, I realized, at least for me, I want my companies to employ as many people as possible. Now, that's not to mean I want to have a, a bloated overhead or staff or anything, but um, all the rest is just details. If I've got a team of people working for me, and if all I'm doing every day when I wake up and go to sleep is thinking about how I put them in a position to pursue their dreams whether they're with me their entire career or whether they're with me one year or 10 years, um, a lot of this stuff takes care of itself. Now that's kind of making something complex sound easy and it's not. Um, but you know, there's nothing more rewarding than seeing that. And it's, it's just something I had never got before. You know, uh, one of, one of my first employees being able to buy like a really nice truck. And in fact, he's that guy is going on vacation to France next week. You know, he, started with nothing. And now here he is traveling to France. Um, or, you know, my head of construction, um, you know, one of the comments he made to me like, you one, uh, Hey, I just want to tell you how much it is. My, my, uh, six-year-old daughter said to me like, Oh daddy, I, I love that you're home so much now. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, at your old job, I would always, uh, you were always gone before I woke up and, you know, I'd always go to sleep before you came home. And, uh, you know, very simple stuff like that, that, you know, makes you extremely motivated. Not that you angle for that. You can't, you can't try to achieve that, but you can try to just give people and you can't give people anything either. 
you give them an opportunity to be the very best version of themselves. And that's, what's very exciting to see what they do with it. Um, you know, and <clears throat> honestly, I, I tell all my employees this all the time and, and, and I know some, a lot of them don't believe me, but the ones who spend the most probably every single morning I wake up and every single day I'm in my truck or driving, I'm just constantly thinking about, it. and you know, honestly, as a leader, most of it's a lot of guilt. Um, you know, and, and guilt is a good driver, but like, am I doing enough for them? Am I putting them in the right place? Have they been promoted? If they haven't been promoted and it's because of skill, was I doing the right training to make sure they got up to that point? So, you know, that's a, I don't, I don't know if that's the, the right way for everybody, but that's the right way for me. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, been the absolute most rewarding part of this whole thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. We. We want business to be loved. We want it to be respected. We want it to be aspirational. We want people to feel good about business, whether they're running it or working in it, or they're a customer of it. And the the world and the society will be a better place if people thought that way. So you're doing a lot to to make that happen. Yeah, no, thanks. And, you know, if someone's sitting here listening to all this, I think me and you talked about it before, if they're I could give one piece of advice to anybody wanting to start something, I would just say act, just do it, just get out and do it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of everything I said sounds sophisticated and, and nice and stuff. And like, I thought it all out, but most of what I became good at is because of trial and failure and pain and, you know, learning the hard way. And, but, you know, of course, then learning from the mistakes and I find so many people wanting to start out perfectly. And, and that's a, that's a bad, uh, a bad equation. You know, you should just go and do, you know, execute with a small plan or half a plan or 10% of a plan, but just do it because you're really going to find all the things you need to learn from in your, in your failure throughout it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Austrian way. It's uh, entrepreneurship is action. So do something and it's learning. It's uh, understanding the feedback loops, which as you say, maybe painful or difficult sometimes, but it's learning and you do better next time and you constantly improve. So you yeah. have given us the essence of the Austrian way, Brett. Yeah. And if, um, and also if anybody wants to reach me, just email me at brett at brettlindell.com, at least for a limited amount of time. If there's someone thinking about starting something or whatever, I'm happy to give free advice of kind of pointing them in the right direction or giving them lessons learned. Um, and, you know, Take advantage of it while you can. Maybe one day, uh, you know, I'm sitting on an island somewhere drinking a drinking a daiquiri and ignoring my inbox. <laughs> well, good. We're we're going to try and persuade you to become a mentor on our econforbusiness.com platform. So that'll be a good place to reach you too. But we'll we'll give people your email address on our on our website. Brett, awesome. thank you very much. I can't I can't thank you enough for today. You've given us more insights and real life learning than than we could pack into the normal forty five minutes. So thank you, thank you very much. No, thank you, Hunter. Great to be with you. Good. Talk soon. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit econforbusiness.com. And for more from Hunter Hastings visit hunterhastings.com.